And Steve Doughty is going to be doing our reading. Good morning. Matthew 16, 21 through 26. For that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to, and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Do not have in, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus says to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their souls? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Thank you, Steve. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. So it is the Advent season, and um, the Advent season officially starts today. I know the Christmas season started like the day after Halloween, um, but the official Advent season is the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and it runs until Christmas Eve. It's a time historically when the church looks back on the first coming, the first Advent. The word Advent, Latin, means the coming or the arrival. We look back on the first arrival of Jesus and what he paid for in his first coming. And then we long for and look forward to his second Advent when he's going to usher in all that he paid for at his first Advent. And so we live in this time between two Advents. I love this time of year because it has such potential to point our eyes to who Jesus is. But I also have trouble with this time of year because of the craziness of our culture in the Christmas season and the ways that many of us get too caught up in it and, and, and we get stressed out and we're always hurried and harried trying to make it to every holiday party and filling up on caffeine and sugar, trying to buy a bunch of gifts for people we see but once a year and we're stressed out and we ask each other questions like, are you done with your Christmas shopping? I haven't even started yet. And it's like, dear Lord. And then to make it worse, we say Jesus is the reason for all of that. So I have this love-hate relationship with the, the season. Um, some years we do an Advent sermon series where we focus on, you know, the stories of Jesus' birth, and some years we don't. This is a year where we're not doing that. We're going to continue through Matthew for these four Sundays in Advent, but we're going to be looking at these passages in light of the Advent season, and, 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 and in light of Jesus' coming for his first time and his second coming in the future and what it calls us to. And for this uh, particular passage, the title is... Advent is an invitation to die. It calls us to die. It's an invitation. When Jesus came, he calls us, we just saw it in this passage, to die to the expectations we have for him, for how God's kingdom is supposed to operate, and also for how our lives are going to go. On the way here, my daughter asked me, she said, what, what's the sermon going to be about? I just kind of summarized it. How Jesus calls us to die to our expectations for our lives and our plans and how we think things need to go. So that we can experience what Jesus actually paid for and invites us into. The resurrection life he invites us into. Many of us want to talk about the resurrection stuff, but without the death, without the dying. But Jesus died so that we could die. And he lived so that we can live. But we can't skip the dying part. That would be like me wanting to marry my wife while I was still holding on to ex-girlfriends. 
just wanting to add on marriage. Can we just add on marriage to the, my life as it is? Sometimes we want to do that with Jesus. Can you just add on the good stuff while I'm clinging to all these other things? All right? And Jesus, now you got to let go of those things in order to grab hold of what I paid for you to experience. And so uh, last week, we looked at this passage with Pastor Rigo, and it's basically a continuation of the same passage. Peter is at the center of it. It's this encounter with Peter that Jesus is having. And, and last week, we saw Jesus praising Peter for his confession. Jesus had said to his disciples, who are people saying that I am? And they had all kinds of responses, just like we have different responses. Most people in our culture will say they believe in Jesus, but when you say, well, what do you believe about him? Well, I guess he's a good guy, or he's a good teacher, he's a moral philosopher. And then Jesus said, but who do you guys say that I am? And Peter was the first one to say, oh, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Not just Messiah. They didn't necessarily believe Messiah was God in flesh. But Peter saw Jesus, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, that was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Flesh and blood did not reveal this. You didn't figure this out on your own with your own intellect and wisdom. And, and that's the case for anybody here who's a follower of Jesus. God the Father opened our eyes to see Jesus for who he is. If you're here and you've trusted in Jesus, it's not because you were smart enough to figure something out. God the Father opened your eyes. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you will not become one until God the Father opens your eyes. That's how it goes. Most people who are not Christians can never see themselves becoming one. We got somebody getting baptized today. God the Father opened their eyes to see Jesus for who he is. Does he use different people and different instruments? Of course. But God the Father opened his eyes. And so Peter had this confession. Jesus said, awesome, you are right. That was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. But now we're going into a pa passage where Peter says the wrong thing. He gets it wrong. He has these expectations for Jesus, and Jesus needs to correct them. Because oftentimes, for you and me, even though we trust in Jesus, we can wake up each day and go, all right, Jesus, here's my plans for how things are going to go. Now that I gave my life to you, I have this plan I want you to make happen. And Jesus says, no, I want you to die to that. He calls us to die to that often. Our expectations for things. I mean, this Christmas season, right, aren't they filled with expectations that are often unmet? Right? We think this is the year this family member is going to get along with this family member. Oftentimes. Doesn't go that way. Our kids, right? I try to tell my kids, beginning of, uh, on Christmas Eve, tomorrow night, Christmas night, you're going to be going to bed a little disappointed, saying, is that all there is? What's next? What's the next exciting thing? And, and we're going to answer you, tomorrow, December 26th, it's going to be pretty boring. Just get ready for that. Let me manage your expectations. That's our life. Jesus calls us to, hey, y your plans for how Jesus is supposed to operate aren't always going to be like that. You got to die to your plans. And Peter especially, because Peter was the kind of guy where if he saw something that seemed like an injustice, or he saw something that seemed wrong, he thought he had to be the one to fix it, to jump in. Anybody like Peter? I was at a uh, Bible study when I was in my early 20s, and the pastor who was leading it was going around telling each guy, it was a men's group, telling each guy which Bible character they reminded him of. So he's like, Anthony, you're like Moses, you know, despite your insecurities, God's going to use you, and you know, so-and-so, you're like David, you're a man after God's heart. Then he gets to me, and he said, Chris, you're like Peter. 
I'm like, nah, I don't want to be like Peter. He's like impulsive and he's, you know, just kind of put his foot in the mouth a lot, oftentimes. And over the next few years, I realized, yeah, I guess I kind of am like Peter, right? Sometimes my strengths can get me into trouble, right? I, like I have a sensitive justice button. If I see something that's unjust, we got to deal with this. That could be a good thing. Somebody getting picked on the playground, stand up for the kid getting picked on. But sometimes it can be a bad thing. I don't want to see anybody getting away with any other sin. Nope, they got to call them out. And sometimes it's too soon. Oftentimes it's too much. And I'm not trusting God with that person or their issue, their addiction, their mindset, what have you. So I can be like Peter. Peter, in this passage, gets rebuked by Jesus right after the passage from last week where he got praised by Jesus. Um, and, and, and we've got to realize that sometimes we can say the right thing, speak for God, and then in the next breath, we can say some pretty stupid things. And we've got to uh, be uh, uh, constantly d- dependent on Jesus. So let's, let's jump into it. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Give me a second. Just had a thought. Where's your husband? Oh, all right. Never mind. Never mind. Okay, carry on. Um, <laughs> sorry, I. No, no, I, I, um, I was going to say, yeah, never mind. I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. Sorry. From that time on, so Jesus is explaining to us, so from what time on? From the time where Jesus had just seen Peter confess that he's the Messiah. From that point on, Jesus begins to more explicitly and clearly say, this is what it means for me to be the Messiah. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And then I'm going to come back to life. Now, they probably didn't hear that part. Their understanding at this point of a resurrection was that all the good Jews would be raised again on the final day. So what they probably heard was, wait a second, the Messiah who is supposed to win in this, this, this oppression that we're under with Rome, he's supposed to come in and take over and bring us back to the glory days like we had with King David. He's going to die? That doesn't make any sense. That would be like somebody running for president, campaigning, and you're campaigning with them, and they're getting more popular, and they're, you know, that person's all over the news, and it looks like they're, the, you know, going to win. All of a sudden, they're like, hey, in order for my policies to be pushed through, I need to lose this election. You'd be like, wait, what? What's all this for? That doesn't make any sense. That, that would be how Peter and his boys would, would hear this. They believed that this would be a political victory, this was a political movement. That's how they believed this to be. They thought that they were gonna, the Messiah was going to make Israel great again. That's what they were thought. They were wearing mega hats, right? <laughs> That's what they thought. And so Peter is bothered. And he pulls Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. So again, Peter being the outspoken guy, the first to speak up, the you know, guy's got to take charge. He pulls Jesus aside. He's like, hey. Listen, he, you know, brings them away from the other guys. Like, they don't need to hear all this negative talk. Come here, come here, come here. Listen, 
I know you're feeling a little discouraged. I know you're feeling a little insecure, but this, this isn't going to happen to the Messiah. We got your back. It's not going to happen to you. He's trying to give Jesus a pep talk. And because he was coming off of the heels of being praised by Jesus for saying the right thing, he was probably a little overconfident, right? A little, 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 little uh, overconfident in what he felt like was the right thing. And he's telling Jesus, this isn't going to happen to you. We got your back. And, and again, I, I, can, I can be guilty of saying the right thing one day, and then the next day, I had a friend, a close friend of mine a few years ago said, Chris, you can say some insightful things, and then you can say some pretty stupid things. I was like, yeah, you're right. You're right, but I'm in good company with Peter. <laughs> so Peter hears this as the Messiah is going to die. And by the way, for the Messiah to die, that means he's not the Messiah. That was, that was their understanding of the Messiah. He would not be the Messiah. This would not make sense. So Peter is threatened now. His plans and his expectations feel threatened. And he reacts. Just like most of us react when something important to us, when some plan, some expectation feels threatened, we react. Some of us, flight or flight, right? How many people are flight? You run, you shut down, you bury yourself in video games or Netflix. Anybody admit you're a flight person? I don't want to deal with it. Anybody a fight person? I react. I try to argue my way into being, you know, I'll try to persuade you with my words or worse. That was Peter. Peter was the fight. No, 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 no. I'm going to, 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 you know, we got your back. I'm going to fix your mindset, Jesus. That was Peter. But in all of us, we react one way or another when we feel threatened. And it's oftentimes not trusting God. It's oftentimes not trusting God. It's fight, it's flight, a boss fires us, and all of a sudden, we think, man, God's will for my life is no longer valid. Now, this boss came in, fired me, I had the great job, I was going to get promoted, I just got fired, and now, my, my life is outside of God's will. Like, God didn't see that one coming. That's how sometimes we react. Like, the boss kicked God off the throne and took over. And we're like, oh no, like God's up in heaven going, man, I didn't see that one coming. What do we do? Chris's life is spiraling out of control now. And so we react, we try to fight back with the boss, or we get angry, or treat them as, you know, like they're the devil. Or we get angry at God, how could you let this happen? We had this deal. I got baptized, and we had this deal, and now my life is harder. You were supposed to do this for me, God. I've seen that before. I've told you guys I've seen that before. Somebody gets baptized and all of a sudden they think my life's going to start to work out better and easier and it gets harder. What the heck, God? We had a deal here. We had a plan. I started going back to church and now my life is harder because now I got conflict with people. Anybody ever feel that way? Life was easier when I was isolating. Huh? Anybody? Okay, let's keep going. Next question, what comes out of you when your plans and expectations get threatened? What comes out? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Or is it irritability, anger, frustration, anxiety, and stress? What comes out? Peter reacts. He's got this, oh, come here. I, I got to fix this. He doesn't stop to say, Jesus, what do you mean by that? No, no, no. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to address this. Maybe he even said to the other guys, hey, John, listen, I, I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him. I'll set him straight. Like, like, like maybe the other guys were like, what's he talking about? Somebody's got to talk to Jesus. He's, he's, he's on this negative train here. 
All right, Peter's, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Right? I don't know exactly how it went down. So Peter's trying to talk sense into Jesus. He thinks he's doing the right thing. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, or Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So he calls him Satan. That word Satan means adversary. So um, he could have been saying, Peter, you are acting as an adversary. You are acting as an obstacle to me right now. Or he could have really meant you are speaking for Satan, like Satan is speaking through you right now. Um, Or both. I'm not sure. But indeed, he was a stumbling block. There was a plan in place since before the foundations of the world, the Bible says, for the Lamb of God to be slain in order to redeem you and I from the curse of this world. And it meant Jesus would have to go through suffering and death. And Satan, along the way, we saw this back in Matthew 4, tempts him, you can have the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go down that path. All you have to do is bow to me. All you have to do is flex your muscles. All, until the very end, I believe he's tempting Jesus. You can get down from the cross. You can fight back. You don't have to go through this. And here's Peter speaking for Satan, saying, Jesus, you don't have to go through this. Peter is saying to Jesus, don't go through this. He doesn't know he's speaking for Satan, but he's encouraging Jesus to go with Satan's plan. We're going to fight back. Don't worry. And he doesn't even realize it. How quickly you and I can misrepresent Jesus and the gospel by speaking too quickly without thinking, without praying, without considering, without getting counsel. Anybody been guilty of that lately? Sometimes we are reacting to what we perceive to be a wrongdoing or an evil in the world, and we think we're speaking for God, and really we are misrepresenting Jesus with what we say. I see it on social media a lot with Christians trying to speak out against what they perceive to be an evil, but doing it in a way where I think Jesus is like, yikes, you're acting as a stumbling block to me and my heart here. And he says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So you are not seeing things from God's perspective. You're seeing this from a human perspective. You, you, you don't understand that my uh, father's plan might not include the, the, the flexing of strength and the taking over of political power like you thought it would. You don't see that. You can't comprehend and you can't trust that God's plan might include something very different than what you had in mind. Unlike today's Christians, Peter thought God's kingdoms would come through political power. But Jesus told him to submit to a much different plan. I'm being facetious there. Peter thought it would come a certain way and Jesus said, no, it's actually going to include the loss of political power. I'm going to be crucified. You guys are going to be persecuted. You guys are going to be fed to lions. You, you guys are going to uh, be kicked out of synagogues. But through that process, this good news is going to spread. There's a saying, right? The uh, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church that was really true as Christians went to their death, as they were persecuted, as they became political enemies. 
the blood. Spread the gospel. Romans wanted to have a courageous death. And, and, and they didn't want to die cowards. And they would see these Christians dying with such boldness and courage. And it would move many of them to go, wow, there's something different about them. There's something different about the way they're dying. How much more do we, the American church, buy into the lie that we can usher in the kingdom of God through our own strength by changing people's hearts with our persuasive arguments and our own wisdom and our own intellect and maybe getting the right people in office or pushing through the right policies or the right laws? Chuck Colson famously said he, was, he, he worked for the uh, Nixon administration. He, he was put in jail because he was mixed up in Watergate, but he became a Christian along the way. And, and he said this, the kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. And it's true, and I think most of us know that it's true in our heads, but the way we sometimes act and, and, and how much we talk about things, uh, we can give the impression to a watching world that what we want to be known as is I'm with this guy, this candidate, this party, this platform, this policy, rather than I'm with a suffering and crucified Savior who paid for me at the cross. I'm with him. I'm associated with him. Many of us are like, yeah, I'll talk about that once in a blue moon, but what I'll really talk about, that was Peter. That was what Jesus is correcting here. This is why then he turns to his disciples because he wants everybody to get this. Look at verse 24. He said to his disciples. So he's alone with Peter. And then it's like he says, hey guys, everybody bring it in. Let me make something very clear here. Right? It's kind of this moment. Like let's get something straight before any of you continue following me and continue down this path with me. Let's make something very clear for all of you. And then he said this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You pick up your cross. We use this phrase, this must be my cross to bear, kind of in the wrong way. We use it to refer oftentimes to this is a hardship or a trial that is out of my control and I can't seem to do anything. I guess it's my cross to bear. Really what Jesus has called us to is you actively, intentionally pick up this cross. When when a crucifixion victim um, was sentenced to death, they had to carry their crossbeam. It was their walk of death. It was, it was, you know, dead man walking, right? You're going to your death. The life that you had is gone. And Jesus is saying, to be my disciple, the life that you had is gone. Now, it, it might mean circumstantially everything gets flipped upside down all at once, but at the very least, it means everything you have right now, you hold loosely to. You hold loosely to it. You're on death row now. Nothing else mattered the way it did before. That's like saying to us, you want to be my disciple? Consider yourself living on death row. Life is different. Everything that was once precious to you, you're holding loosely. So that if I say you need to make a change, you're gonna, I'll let go of that because I want to cling to you. And that's why he said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever clings to everything else can't cling to me, Jesus said. You can't cling to me if you're clinging to everything else. But if you hold loosely to those things in order to cling to me, you'll find it. You'll find true life. But you've got to be willing to die to the hold that those things have on you. You've got to be willing to say, Jesus, whatever it takes, are you willing to pick up your cross and hold loosely to all that is precious? So that if Jesus says, that money, this is how I want you to spend it, okay, Jesus, money's yours. That job I want you to 
take a different job, okay? Not that important. Your sex life, I want you to make some changes, okay? Holding loosely to it. Their spouse who's not changing, I want you to continue loving that spouse, okay, Jesus. Being single, I want you to stay single, okay? I'll do it, I'll do it. I want you to move to Japan, I'll do it, I'll do it. Holding loosely to all those things so that we can cling to Jesus tightly. Sometimes it means for our kids, right? We say we want our kids to know Jesus and it might take a very long route where uh, they make a few pit stops and places like prison. And are we willing to keep trusting God and say, Jesus, I'm trusting you here. I'm trusting you here instead of getting bitter and railing our fists at God. How could you let this turn out this way? It might mean in our culture that we are going to be persecuted like many Christians around the world have been persecuted. The other day, or a couple weeks ago rather, somebody in our Thursday morning prayer time had this really powerful prayer. They kind of confessed. They said, Jesus, I'm sorry that I had this expectation that all the other Christians in the world are going to be persecuted, but not me in America. And it was like, yeah, yeah, why do we have this expectation that it's, and then we start to hate people and we start to hate other groups. And it's like, wait, 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 who said that it was going to be like that? This expectation that we need to die to. It will definitely mean for us in America laying down our idolatry of, of safety and security and personal freedom and the things that uh, are good in and of themselves. But when elevated too high, we tend to cling to those things and sometimes at the cost of Jesus. And we hold loosely to Jesus then. A few years ago, somebody said to me he didn't understand why parents in other parts of the world were encouraging his ki their kids. This is, you know, this is happening. ISIS, uh, 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 you know, this was during the, uh, the um, 2014, 2015, I believe. Um, and um, he said, I don't understand why parents would encourage their kids to stand on their faith in Jesus even unto death. You know, ISIS knocks on the door. I mean, what's happening? If you, your faith in Jesus, yes, you're dead. And why would parents encourage their kids? Why not just lie so that they can go on living for God? Grow up and tell other people about Jesus. And I got his point. It's very pragmatic. It's rational. It's reasonable. But then I look at Scripture and it's like, American, die to your pragmatism. Die to your rationalizing. Die to your constant reasoning and just obey Jesus. If he said, open your mouth, open your mouth, even unto death. Because then Jesus says this, what good will it be? This is it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I want to remind you once again of the context. Peter and the other disciples expected this to be a political movement with a political victory at the end where they had positions of influence in this administration, so to speak. That's what they expected, to bring it back to the days of King David. And Jesus is saying, if you gained all that, but you lost your soul in the process, what good would it be? There were zealots at this time. Some of them were among the disciples who had a really, um, uh, th th their approach to dealing with the Romans, some of them w would, would even go around trying to assassinate Roman soldiers. They were uh, 
dagger bearers they were known as. And, and they had this really like, we're going to fight against them kind of posture. To the point where some of them were losing their soul. The character that God was calling them to have was being lost in the process of trying to fight back against what they perceived to be their enemy. Another way to put it, many good conservative Jews were reacting to the secular pagan culture by letting their souls become the opposite of the character of God. How prone are we to that, huh? So, for all of us, as I close, just to hit this home, getting the power and the possessions and the safety and the policies while becoming an idolater of those things in the process equals a major loss. That's what Jesus is saying. You lose your soul in the process. Getting our dream spouse, dream job, dream house in a dream neighborhood at the cost of following Jesus wholeheartedly equals a major loss. Going to church, church folks, reading our Bible every day, having a great reputation, but without a heart fully surrendered to Jesus is a religious game and it means a major loss. I want to um, call the band up. We're going to reflect on a few things before we sing a final song. I've got a few questions I want to give us. And try to really reflect. Ask God to show you here. Here's the first one. In what way is Satan whispering, you shouldn't have to put up with blank? Our expectation tends to be if it's uncomfortable or if it's unfair, we shouldn't have to put up with it. We get to fight back. And certainly there's times when that may be true. There might be boundaries and such that are needed. But sometimes we're too quick to just go based off of what feels unfair to us, not equal and we don't really have an authority that's telling us that. We're just reacting out of our feelings or out of what some maybe co-worker is telling us. Oh, you shouldn't have to put up with that. You know, you stick it to them. And we're not thinking and we're not praying and we're not saying, Jesus, how would you respond to this? So in what way? Just take a moment. In what way is Satan whispering to you, you shouldn't have to put up with blank? Because that's what Peter was saying to Jesus. You shouldn't have to put up with any suffering. Here's another one. Where are you tempted to believe God can't possibly allow blank to be part of my process for growth? You lose your job. Can't be from God. He wouldn't allow this. He wouldn't use this to grow me in my faith in him, my trust in him. Maybe he will use something like that. A breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. God wouldn't let this happen. This can't be part of my growth process. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. 
when I hear of difficult breakups or dating relationships, my, my primary prayer for people in our church is Jesus. Let them know Jesus. And if that means this relationship works out, okay. If it means they break up, okay. And if somebody's dating, by the way, and, and, or even engaged, I'll just tell you as your pastor that if I sense that Jesus is taking a back seat because of a relationship, that, that, that the, the clinging to Jesus is no longer something that's a priority for you, I pray, God, whatever it takes to get them clinging to you again, even if that means that relationship has to end, what will it profit you if you gain the relationship but lose Jesus in the process? So what are you tempted to believe? God can't possibly allow blank to be part of my process for growth. Let's take a moment. And lastly, where's the devil tempting you to put too much trust in money or prestige or jobs or businesses or people or political policies or political saviors? And you can add more to that. Where's your hope? Satan doesn't want us fixing our eyes on Jesus as our hope or kneeling at the cross. He wants us to have a sword in our hand trying to protect everything that we think is so precious to us. What has become too important? That's a question I ask my kids a lot when they're fighting with each other. What has become too important that would make you fight so much with each other? When there's hatred in our hearts for someone else, that is an indicator that something has become too important and that something is now threatened by that person. Our hatred should be an alarm, a, a check engine like going, something is too important here. Pull over. Get with Jesus. And finally, are you willing to follow a suffering and crucified Messiah into death so that you might truly live? Whatever we lose because we follow Jesus, we gain immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. we gain immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Jesus came in a baby, not how people expected the Messiah to come. Humble beginnings, poor family, from the podunk town of Nazareth. People said, who is this guy? It's Mary and Joseph's son. Who comes from Nazareth? That was God's plan, to break expectations. And if anybody couldn't see 
that God's plan would come through such humble beginnings. They weren't part of it. Advent is a time for us to remember the way God works is often so different than the way we think it should work. Let's stand as we sing a final song.